If you are a fan of movies, if you're kind of big into that world, you know that the last decade has been the decade of remakes. That every time you head to the movie theater, you think you're looking at a movie you've seen before, probably because you have at some point. Because these days, there's kind of no more original stories. It's the same story kind of repackaged, redone. There's been a new Magnificent Seven in the last few years. There's been, uh, Disney has been remaking all of its classic animated stories in live action. And this has kind of become kind of a critique. Again, in the, in the movie world, where are the original stories? Where are the new stories? With, uh, it, I'm sad to say this morning that there are new, new stories, and there haven't been any new stories since the beginning of time. Actually, those that are involved in kind of the narrative world will tell you that really that we think that we can narrow all stories down to about seven plot lines. And some authors, like Christopher Booker, think that we can actually get that further. And that actually, whenever we tell a story, we're really telling one of only two stories. Shakespeare thought this as well. And what Shakespeare called it was either a tragedy or a comedy. He said, all stories either end at a low point where things haven't resolved, where things have gone very badly, or in a comedy, things have brightened. There is hope. There's resolution. The hero wins. All stories, you can kind of narrow down to those two categories. Things resolve well, or things end in tragedy. The details of the stories might change. There might be different characters. There might be different adventures. But at the end, the question remains, is this going to end well, or is this going to end badly? As we come to the end of the first story in Scripture that we have been looking at now for a number of weeks, the story of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, I think in my heart, and maybe in your heart, you have been asking yourself this question. Is this story going to end well? We've probably had it a thousand times, but this time we've been going through with this lens of seeing that Genesis is good news. The whole series is called The The Good News According to Genesis, The Gospel of Genesis. And so, is it really going to end well? Given that what we've had in the last couple of weeks, that Adam and Eve have chosen to reject God, that they have chosen to abandon this beautiful plan, this beautiful design that God had given them, is it really going to end well for them? And perhaps if you know the story, you're already thinking, no, it doesn't end well. But I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge you to think with kind of a a fresh perspective on these final verses of chapter 3 when we read the end of Adam and Eve's kind of beginning story. Because though we might be inclined to think that this story is a tragedy, actually I think that this story is a story of hope. What we read in Genesis 3 isn't a story of tragedy, it's a story of hope. And more than that, it is a pattern for every single one of our stories. When we read this story, what we're really asking when we see Adam and Eve in their sin and their brokenness is, what about my story? Is my story going to end well? Can God really take the brokenness of my life and and the, the brokenness of my sinful choices and do something good with it? And Genesis 3's answer for you today is yes, he can. It's the heart of the whole story. So I want to read these final verses from Genesis 3 to you, verses 16 through 24. This is what happens. 
To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Is that a tragedy? It feels like it. We read what happened and in our hearts we wonder, is there anything good to be found here? And again the answer is yes. This isn't a tragedy, it's a story of hope. It's a story of how in our brokenness, in our rejection of God, He does not reject us. No matter how it seems, no matter how we feel, God is pursuing us, He is working for us, He is working in us. And so we're going to dive right in today. And hopefully, what you will take is that in every story of tragedy is a God of hope that is working to restore all things. So let's jump right in. I want to look at two things today. The consequences of Genesis and the covering of Genesis. And first, we'll start with the consequences of Genesis. I realize whenever we're going through a book like this, there's so many deep uh, theological, philosophical things that we need to understand about it. So what I've done for us this week is I've found us a very scientific video that will help us understand what has happened here at the end of Genesis. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this on and we're going to walk through this video together and it is going to very clinically explain to us what has happened. So let's, let's roll that. Here is creation. Perfectly running, everything's fine. Oh, a serpent has appeared. Things are looking weird. Things are shaking up. We're not quite sure. Oh, Eva started listening to him. She's taken in his words. Things are really starting to shake up now. What will happen next? Well, we know along comes Adam. He listens to his wife. He eats too. Things are really getting messed up now. And then Andrew Griffiths was born. And things really started to get crazy. Because then I followed my father Adam and all of creation shook to pieces. As ridiculous as that is, I think that that captures perfectly for us what's happened to creation. This perfect well that God has made, that was running fine, that was beautiful, that he intended for good things, wonderful things to share with us, our sin is like throwing bricks into the system. 
And what sin does, what we're going to find out here in Genesis 3, is sin shakes the whole system to pieces. Because it upsets the created order. It forces us into the place of God, a place that we should never be, a place that we could never live up to. And because of that, everything is fractured. It's broken. Genesis 3 records this. When God, he comes to Adam and Eve and he explains to them what their sin has done. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So I want to give you just a brief recap to this moment, because this is a painful moment. And if we don't remember what came before, we won't understand what's happening in this conversation. So to recap for us, God has created the entire earth with one intention, is to send his image bearers to be creators like him, to be stewards and shepherds like him, and to be carers like him, to model him and to image him into the whole earth. And what human beings have done at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is we have made a terrible exchange. We have essentially bought into this lie that God is not good, that God is withholding, and that we could do his job better than him. That's what the serpent says. He says, God knows that if you eat from this tree, you'll be like him. And you really will have no more need of him. And so Adam and Eve, they both buy into this. They take this. And at that moment, a fracture occurs. All of creation is broken. Everything that God intended for mankind has been upset because everybody's out of place. Everything is out of order. And what we'll see is that the main effect of sin is it takes what God created as good and it twists it out of shape. It bends it in the wrong direction. What I want us to see here is God is not reaching into his bag of curses to punish Adam and Eve and to make them feel bad about themselves. They absolutely feel that, but I would note to you, when does Adam and Eve's shame begin? When God starts speaking to them or when they eat from the tree? When they eat from the tree. God is not the one who has brought shame on them. They have brought shame on themselves because of sin. And in fact, what is God's response to their eating of that tree? Does he fly off the handle in anger and rage? No, he gently approaches them and he asks them questions. What's happened? Where are you at? What have you done? God pursues them. He reaches out for them. He chases after them. So then we need to understand that as a, a kind of a precursor to this conversation. This conversation is not happening in a moment of God kind of spilling his rage out on them. It's in the midst of a conversation in which God is searching them out and trying to help them understand what's happened. The point that I would also point out to you is, even as we talk about the curse and the curses that happen in the earth because of Adam and Eve, there's a distinction between the way that God curses the serpent and the way that he curses Adam and Eve. What he says to the serpent, the one who deceived him, is, cursed are you because of what you've done. He never says that to an Adam and Eve. He never says, cursed are you. What he says is, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the earth because of you. 
So what happens here is that God curses the serpent directly, but with Adam and Eve, that curse is deflected. God is not cursing Adam and Eve directly. Really, I think what we're seeing in this passage is more of an explanation from God as to what has happened to the earth because of them. Most of his statements are kind of an unpacking of sin's consequences. Because sin is not a neutral action. Sin is not something that just kind of happens in a vacuum, and if it wasn't for God, nothing bad would happen. The truth is, sin itself is destructive. It warps things out of their intentions. That's the real message of what happens here in Genesis 3, is sin by itself, before God even shows up, destroys things. You might be inclined to think that what God calls sin doesn't sometimes hurt people. Is this really, why does God call this sin? It doesn't hurt me, it doesn't hurt anyone else. But I wanna, want you to understand from Genesis 3 is, what God calls sin is always harmful. It's harmful to you or it's harmful to others. There is no situation in which sin doesn't leave damage behind for someone. And most often, for you. So I want to look at three consequences that kind of come out of this moment of sin, this first sin in the world. Physical consequences, relational consequences, and experiential consequences. And the first is the physical consequences. We're told for both the woman and the man that in pain you shall bring forth children. And to the man he says, in pain you shall eat of the ground all the days of your life. Pain is now a part of humanity's reality. And for Eve, God warns her specifically that this will be in the realm of childbearing. Now, I am... Uh, very aware this morning that I have never experienced childbearing, ever. So this is kind of a, a difficult thing to walk through as a guy because it's a realm of life that I just don't really understand. Now, I've been a spectator many times. In all of Janae's uh, children, we had C-sections. So that's a unique experience. If you know anything about C-sections, you get to show up at the hospital, and then you've got your baby 20 minutes later. There's a lot of pain medication involved, and so the pain for Janae didn't start until after she was in recovery. But for those women that we had to walk past to get to the operating room, they looked at you like you were breaking some serious rules. <laughs> These poor women that were in labor for hours at a time, kind of pacing the corridors, hoping that they might get to the end of it soon, watching us stroll right into surgery. That was uh, a humiliating moment. And I wasn't even involved. Obviously, it's difficult. But when we think about what God says here, I want you to think about more than just kind of the simple pain of something like child labor. God's saying something far deeper to weave. He's not simply saying, hey, I'm really upset with you, and so things are going to be really bad for you now. He's saying something more nuanced. That's why we have to look at Adam as well and see that for both Eve and Adam, pain is now a real consequence for both of them, not just for Eve. It's expressed differently in each one because men and women are different physically, because God has intended unique roles for men and women. However, this reality of pain and brokenness is real for both of them. The point isn't necessarily that God wants to bring horrendous pain on them. It's that because of sin, what was intended to be a largely pain-free experience is now painful. Things that our bodies were designed to do perfectly, they will now do imperfectly. And I don't want us to get mixed up here, because it's common in our day and throughout the scripture for us to read this and go, okay, so what this means is, 
all pain and physical illness are kind of a, a consequence of our sin. That's what happens. Now, it is true that because of sin, our world is fractured physically, and so there are all kinds of physical experiences that we all know about. Disease and illness and death were not part of God's original creation. However, we can't draw a direct line between every physical malady that we experience and our own personal sin. In fact, in Jesus' own day, his disciples would ask him about people that they would encounter that were asking Jesus for healing. There was once a paralyzed man, and his disciples said to Jesus, why is this man paralyzed? Is it his sin, or is it his parents' sin? And Jesus says something that's really important for all of us to understand. He says, nobody's sin has done this to this man. What Jesus is saying is that there isn't a direct line between this man's personal sin or anybody else's personal sin and what's happened to him. He says, rather, this happens so that the glory of God might be shown, that the works of God might be shown. Sin has caused physical suffering in our world, but God's work, even in Genesis, even with Adam and Eve in this conversation, is to use what sin has done to draw them back to him. God isn't saying to Adam and Eve, you've messed up, so now you're going to get it. God is saying, you have brought great suffering upon yourselves, and I'm going to use that to draw, that back, draw you back to me the one who you have rejected. In Romans 8, we're told in verses 19 through 21, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul's writing here about the brokenness of creation, about the, the physical pain, the struggle that we all experience in this world, and what he's saying is that God is going to use it to accomplish his own ends, that in hope, God is going to move in our suffering. C.S. Lewis once said something very helpful in this realm. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is, is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world. So here's the good news of that for you today. That no matter what you struggle with, whether it's chronic illness, whether it is disease, whether you've experienced diminished ability in some way, that story isn't a story of tragedy. Your pain is not a story of tragedy. It is a story of hope. A hope that beyond your pain lies a God who is going to work into this world restoration and healing. And we see this and we experience this with those that we know and we love who walk through suffering and yet they praise God and they put their hope in God and that, in that terrible situation, breathes hope and joy for the rest of us. That even there in the suffering of sin and brokenness, we see a God working good things into people's lives. There's also relational consequences in the world because of this. We're told, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. Now, God says this to Eve, but this is really for both of them. What God is saying is that there is now dysfunction in your relationship because of sin. 
The word for desire here, when it says your desire will be contrary to your husband, is the same one that's used in the story of Cain and Abel when God says to Cain, sin's desire is contrary to you. God's point, of course, is that sin does not want what is good for you. Sinful impulse does not want what is good for you. And so what God is saying here in the context of Adam and Eve, he's saying your desire for one another will now be not about what is beneficial to one another, but what is beneficial to yourself. Sin has warped Adam and Eve from being partners to being competitors. The drive in their hearts now will not be what's good for my other, what's good for my neighbor, it will be what's good for me. Relationships become about using others instead of serving others. So Genesis 3.16, this story, it's, it's not meant to be used as a pattern for what's kind of right in marriages. It's a picture of what's horribly wrong in them. Is that men domineer and desire things contrary to their wife's benefit. And we can see that in, in Adam's story, can't we? Because you remember what Adam's words were when God first created Eve? He said, at last, born of my born. And what does he say as soon as things go wrong? It's not my fault, it's hers. He throws her under the bus. It's despicable. This woman that God had called this man to protect, to love, to serve, to give himself for, now he tries to throw her under the bus so he can avoid consequences for himself. And the same things happen to Eve. Both of them, their relationship is now distorted. It's warped. They don't love and serve one another. They love and serve themselves. That's what sin does to our relationships. It makes us competitors rather than partners. And even though this is in the context of marriage, this is true about all relationships, isn't it? Every relationship we have, we struggle with this impulse in ourselves to see what our preferences are first, what our intentions, our designs, desires are, and then see how that other person can meet those. If we read in Ephesians 5, we see what relationships really were intended to be. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. I know that's a passage that can be distorted in a lot of ways, but do you know what the point of Ephesians 5 is? Aside from the marital roles and everything like that, it's that God's intention for relationship was that both members would love and serve one another, that they would not seek themselves over the other, that wives would love and honor and, and bring joy and blessing to their husbands and seek their good, that husbands would lay their own lives down for the sake of their wife, give themselves up, lay aside their own desires so that they might honor and lift up their wives and bring blessing on them. That's God's picture for relationships, is two people in perfect union loving and serving one another, giving themselves for one another. The relational consequences of sin are devastating, but... Christ offers us hope. 
Relationships can be one of two stories. They can be a tragedy if we let them become all about ourselves and our own needs and our own desires, or they can be a story of hope. If we take note of the brokenness in our own heart and the way that sin has warped us and say, we need to find ourselves in Christ so that the person across from me can now become an object of my service and my love and my affection rather than someone I'm using to meet my own needs. Last thing to mention really quickly is experiential consequences. We're told, cursed is the ground because of you, Adam, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Final part of the curse of sin is that our experience of this life is profoundly changed. God explains to Adam and Eve that their sin brings a curse upon the world around them. Not just their own bodies and their relationships, but the very ground, the very earth around them is now intended to be something that is difficult. And remember, God intended human beings to cultivate the garden, to keep the garden. So now this thing that God had created for them as a gift, sin has warped it yet again. Work is laborious now. Maybe you can kind of get this, you know, when the summertime, we're getting ready now in spring to start mowing the grass again. I hate it. It's laborious. And I imagine this beautiful day in heaven where all of these things will just be a joy to do. Any kind of labor that you experience in this world is because of sin. It's because the order of creation has been fractured. King Solomon talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, which I hope we study as a church sometime because it's a great book. He says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. See, if work is for ourselves rather than God, we'll never find satisfaction in it. We were designed to serve and bring glory to Him. And so when we serve and we work to bring glory to ourselves as sin pushes us to do, then it's vanity, it's empty. This is why some people stay in a career and feel the burden every day of wondering, am I really making an impact? Is my work making a difference? Your story of work can be a tragedy or a story of hope. It can be a tragedy if the goal of your work is to bring glory to yourself, to build a legacy for yourself, if all your labor ends on you. But it can be a story of hope. If when you realize the striving and the work that you're experiencing is because you have need of a God who loves you, who can fulfill your needs so that your work can become about serving others, bringing impact to others. Curse of sin has placed us in a world of struggle and tragedy, but the story of hope is because of what God does for this man and this woman and what he does for all of us. This is the covering of Genesis. In the end of Genesis 3, we're told the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then the Lord God made for Adam and Eve what garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. I want you to read carefully with me. What does God do for Adam and Eve when he completes this conversation, this unpacking of sin's consequences? He clothes them. Remember, Adam and Eve at this point have created fig leaves for themselves in their shame and their guilt. They've tried to cover themselves, and it is a poor covering. 
covering. And yet their God, their tender father, comes to them and says, let me cover you. Let me do for you what you cannot do for yourselves. The first sacrifice in all of the Bible occurs, pointing towards a sacrifice that would one day come to cover all of us. And God takes animal skins and he wraps it around them to bring warmth to them, to bring security to them, to cover their shame. Because this is not a story of tragedy, it's a story of hope. Because even in this broken world, there is still a God who is faithful to them, who loves them. What God goes on to do is that he sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Because God does bring punishment on sin, he does bring judgment. He says, you can't stay here because of what you have done. And he cuts them off from the tree of life. Why does he do that? What an odd thing to do. That, that's perhaps the moment where we feel things are most tragic. But understand what God is doing, what God is saying. He's saying they've become like us. They have decided to become rulers of their own lives. And I know that that's going to end badly for them. So what I don't want for them is to live forever in this state of self-destruction. So I am going to separate them from the tree of life so that this will be temporary so that I can work and I can set this right. Because what does God do after they have left the garden? We don't have time to roll into the entire story of Scripture today, but what we find is that once Adam and Eve leave and they have children, Cain and Abel, God continues to have conversation with them. God continues to move in the lives of their family, and so on and so on for every other page of Scripture. So who else has left the garden? God. He has not sent them out on their own. He said, I'm coming with you into this broken world. That's a picture of what would eventually happen when Christ himself, the Son of God, would come into our broken world and walk through it with us. Live in the brokenness of it with us. Doesn't forget us. God is not one who lives in his paradise and expels us down to figure it out on our own. He is one who himself sets aside his own majesty, his own splendor, and comes and dwells and walks with us in this broken world. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, have been covered by Christ. God knows how self-destructive self-determination is. And so he loves us enough to impose restrictions and consequences so that he can set things right. It is a mercy to them that he says, I'm not going to let you stay like this forever. I'm not going to let pain and brokenness and dysfunction define you forever. I am going to come and undo what you have done. Genesis 3 is not a tragedy. The story of God is not a tragedy. It is a story of hope. And the end of the Bible's narrative reminds us of that because this is what we read in Revelation 7. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. 
neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, we are afraid of God, but we should not be. We fear his consequences. We fear his judgment. But the story of Scripture isn't a story of tragedy. Your story need not be a story of tragedy. It can be a story of hope because of the God who comes into this broken world to set things right. Sin has indeed brought great brokenness to our world and our lives, but God offers restoration in his Son, the Lamb of God. He who was slain for us that his blood might renew us and remake us and bind up all the fractures that we have caused. He who will remove the curse of sin for everyone who comes to him and finds shelter in him. He who wipes away tears from every eye and who guides us back to the tree of life. He who offers to write our story of tragedy into a story of hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that though our story absolutely could have been one of tragedy, we find a God who loves us enough to work in our tragedy a story of hope. Lord, today I pray that for those in this room struggling with this question of how their story will end, I pray that Genesis 3 would point them towards your Son who covers them. That it would point them towards the Father who walks with them. And it would point them towards the hope of a God who rewrites stories of tragedy into stories of hope. Lord, we bless you, we sing to you, we listen to you, and we honor you this morning because you are our story of hope. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.